Welcome to Wild Places. I'm your host, Brad Clement. This podcast is presented by Pangee Foundation, saving snow leopards, helping communities. We have a fantastic guest today, Dr. Natalie Schmidt. Nat, it is it is great to see you. Great to have you on as a guest and so, so excited. And thank you for joining us. Oh my gosh, Brad, I'm so excited to be amongst the first uh, people that Panji are going to be interviewing for these podcasts. I feel like this is such an honor and uh, you and I have been friends for so long. And, and so, yeah, this is going to be fun. Good, good. <laughs> so I love that. I think you're very humble. You're very quiet about what you do. And here you are, you have traveled the Southern Ocean, Antarctica, you have uh, trekked in the high mountains of the Himalaya, all for really cool conservation and science initiatives. And and yet, here's what I think many people may not know, and I'm going to throw this at you just to see your reaction. You, at at certain points in your life, were also a model, and you were also a, a television host. And so I mentioned that, because what a what a beautiful depth of just life experience. And how, how do you go from being a model to a PhD wildlife biologist? And, and what, what was that journey? How did, you, how did you end up as Dr. Natalie Schmidt? Oh my gosh, Brad, that's a huge question to start <laughs> off with. How do I even begin? Um, well, I guess as, as a teenager, so to start with, I've always had an absolute love for animals, for wildlife, for nature. And I knew that that my life was going to be devoted to protecting animals, protecting wildlife, uh, uh, whether that be through conservation. You know, I was toying with the idea of being a vet for a while, um, but that that's always been my passion. But as a teenager, I lacked so much confidence in myself and uh, my, my grandmother used to be a model and she used to run her own modeling agency. And so she thought, what better way to, to, to fill me with confidence than for me to succeed as a model? And uh, yes, I mean, it, it gave me uh, short term uh, confidence, you know, whenever I got work and then I was able to travel around the world with it, which was, which was pretty cool. And so, yeah, that boosted my confidence a bit. Um, but it wasn't kind of long lasting. And of course, with modeling, it's, it's all about external appearance. It's got nothing to do with what's going on in here, which as you grow older becomes so much more important. Um, and so I've always been attracted to, so going specifically talking about the Antarctic experience and, and the Himalayan experience, What's really strange is that I'm a warm weather person. I've grown, I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, which is a very Mediterranean climate. And, uh, but strangely, I've always been attracted to these, to these um, isolated places that are really cold. And I've always wondered why, what has attracted me to these really cold and harsh places? And I think it's, it's because they're so isolated, it's because they're so cold, it's because they're so challenging that I admire the wildlife that can survive in these places. And I guess there's also a part of me that really likes being in these isolated places far away from human beings, 
it it's a it's a strange dichotomy i find that the, the more isolated you are the more connected you feel uh with all of life with all of nature with with all of humanity as well wow well that's a it's a beautiful way to put that that's really nice yeah yeah so, so you got your phd you know you've traveled the world for for animal related causes and now you're also embarking on this new work with DNA and species identification. And you've started this company, Wild Tech DNA. And, yeah. and what, what drew you to studying DNA? And then I wanna hear a little bit more about how what you're working on can help species survival and species identification and how that all blends into one uniform uh, purpose. That's a really good question. So I've, I guess, I, so I used to study animal behavior. So when, when I came out of university, I, I went on to study marsupial behavior, which I really enjoyed and I found really interesting. But I felt that it wasn't really achieving enough in terms of conservation. And I, and I, that's when I went into documentary film presenting because, I mean, I actually quit science for five or six years because I, I was interested in career paths that would able, enable me to make, to make more of a difference in conservation. And I think being able to communicate the science, communicate conservation work to the general public uh, is a really powerful way of encouraging people to be more involved in conservation efforts. So whilst I was doing all of this filming, I became, I started to become really interested in genetic tools and how genetic tools can be used to study species that are very difficult to study. So particularly rare and elusive species like whales, like snow leopard, like all those animals that live in these harsh climates that are really difficult to track, um, are really difficult to monitor. And so I read more and more on these genetic techniques and that's, that's what attracted me to doing a PhD on, on humpback whales because we were using specific genetic tools to look at um, how different populations mix uh, on their feeding grounds in the Antarctic and how we can even track individual movement uh, through these, these genetic tools. And so after I finished my PhD, I was kind of at a bit of a loss as to what to do next. And I tried to incite you know, various uh, uh, whale projects, but I didn't have a lot of success because there's a lot of competition in the whale world uh, for funding. And I got pretty tired of competing with that. And I stumbled upon this paper, and I can't even remember how I did that, but I stumbled upon this paper that was written by this biomedical group at McMaster University. And they developed this really cool paper-based biosensor to detect bacteria and other pathogens in food and water samples. And I, I kind of had this eureka moment where I thought, my God, how, what if that could be applied to species detection? What if we could actually alter this methodology and create a paper, a simple paper-based device that could be used to detect species? The, the applications for this in conservation would be enormous. I, and, and 
at that very moment, I found a real purpose. I thought, not only am I, I'm not just focused on studying a particular species, I now want to embark on something that could be applied to so many different species. Hmm. Because currently, the technologies that are out there are very expensive. They're very slow, like the traditional way that we identify a species from a genetic sample, say, say a poo sample that we might collect from a snow leopard up in the Himalayas. We need to send that sample off to a lab. And sometimes that can take months, even six months to be analysed. And it's expensive and you require a certain level of expertise to be able to conduct those types of analysis. So it excludes pretty much most of the world from really being a part of conservation efforts. And, and throughout my whole career, that's something I've been really passionate about because I've realised that if we're to win this battle to save biodiversity, which in the cl- current pandemic climate, it's become the most important thing. It's never been more important than at this time that we focus on protecting and saving our biodiversity. And in order to do that, we need more and more people to be involved in conservation efforts. So we need the public to be involved, but we also need uh, experts and the public within developing countries. So developing countries, many developing countries just simply do not have access to these types of laboratory facilities. And, And countries like Nepal, as you know, have restrictions on even sending samples out of the country. So this, so, so this technology that you're working on will effectively and rather wonderfully uh, open up access to conservation to to communities, to citizen scientists who who can engage in their own backyard and help you help themselves and and their community uh, through what is going to become less expensive, more accessible type of testing to help these animals, which then in turn helps the overall ecosystem, which then helps the livelihood for these communities. And and so I, I think that can't be stressed enough how your technology, not that it's simplifying anything, I don't want to use that term because it's still very, very techy to, to <laughs> yeah. analyze DNA samples but it's, it's making it easier for more people to become involved at a much reduced cost. And I think that's fantastic. And <laughs> it just, it breaks barriers and allows people entry into saving their world. We're, we're all connected. And, and something as, as simple as making this DNA testing easier and less expensive can really change uh, the model of conservation. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think of examples like, um, you'll be very aware of this because of the work that Panji are doing uh, in Nepal. But as you know, that, that there's, there's a lot of conflict uh, between communities in snow leopard and many other carnivore species in Nepal, because many of these Himalayan communities depend so much on livestock for their livelihood. But what we're seeing happening is that because snow leopard, you know, have a shortage of, of their natural prey um, because of the roads being built and, you know, human encroachment, 
we're finding that snow leopards are actually coming into these communities and, and they're taking livestock. But not just snow leopard, there are other carnivores as well, like, you know, wolves and foxes and, you know, other types of carnivores. But often the snow leopard is wrongly uh, persecuted. And if, if, if these communities can be given a very simple tool that they can use to take, say, a scat sample, um, and they can use this tool to identify what species that scat belongs to, or they can take the carcass of uh, um, uh, a, a livestock animal that's been taken by a carnivore, they can take a swab of the saliva around that bite mark and they can determine, you know, what, what was the culprit species. And so that, that could in turn help government, that could in turn help conservation groups to, 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 to be able to target their conservation efforts and management better. So if we're finding that, okay, yes, it is snow leopards that are the culprit here, um, then we need to focus our conservation efforts on, on snow leopard. And that helps empower the community as well. Um, and it helps them better understand their, their environment. Um, and, and, and the other application of this type of technology is in monitoring the illegal wildlife trade. So snow leopard is another example. You know, one of one of the biggest impacts on their on their um, abundance is is that many are taken as trophies, uh, many are poached and and illegally trafficked uh, across countries. But in even in developing countries, customs office customs officers have no way of very quickly being able to determine what is a legally traded, traded product versus an illegally traded product. And so because they can't, they don't have the, the means to which to do that, often, you know, it just, the product just ends up going through and, and, and yeah, the person who perpetrated it never gets, never gets caught. And so we need to empower law enforcement, customs officers to be able to do this quickly and easily and inexpensively. So. Yeah, there's there's just so many applications to this. You can see I'm really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which which is great. And you know, you talk about snow leopards and there's the, traveling to Nepal and the Himalaya. There, there's a lot of sex appeal to that. That's a that's a sexy thing to talk about. But <laughs> but I also know, knowing you, that going back to this passion you have and how excited you are, you you've really. Uh, You've dedicated so much and you've sacrificed quite a bit. You left your home in Australia. You're now living in Canada. The pandemic hit. You're, you're, you know, you're confined and, and remaining so dedicated all for the purpose of, of exploring and, and generating and developing these technologies. So I, I think that needs to be noted that, yeah, some of the work is probably pretty damn sexy out in the field and in beautiful places, but what you have sacrificed is is tremendous in in this purpose and this passion that you have oh thanks brad <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's been the pandemic is has been really hard and it's been hard on so many people um but i think yeah for myself and you know, i'm sure you're the same you know when you're when you're the type of person that gets so much from being out in nature and you know that i mean 
as a conservation scientist, that's what we live for is, is getting out there, seeing our study animal and working with communities and in these incredible natural spaces. But people don't realise that even, even outside the pandemic, we probably do that 5% of the time. And, and the rest of the time I'm, I'm in either in the lab or I'm in front of my computer uh, so with this pandemic, of course, I've not been able to go to these places that I love so much and, and, and just long to get back to. Um, and I haven't been even been able to work in the lab. So I've essentially been stuck in just this room. I just live in a room. Um, I've, I've been, I don't have a lot of, of funding and I don't want this to be a sub story. Um, but yeah, I've, but I've, what I've done is I've used this time to try and get more funding on board so I can bring a team of people together to ensure that this technology gets developed. And I think actually what has helped me through this is just having that sense of, that really big sense of purpose. I'm, I'm really grateful for having that because I think if I didn't have that then I would be struggling tremendously because yeah to be away from so far away from my family who I've not seen for nearly three years uh and friends and uh in 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 a place that I wouldn't necessarily choose <laughs> to be in having that 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 greater sense of purpose just has really helped me get through all of this it's wonderful Wonderful. Where do you want it? Once you can travel, where's the first place you want to go? Nepal. (laughs) (laughs) Nepal. Because um, what, what we are, um, what we are trying to do, like working, working with you guys, with Panji, I mean, you should talk a bit about, you know, your goals with Panji in Nepal and what we're trying to do with some of the, Uh, Himalayan communities there you know yeah well you know what we do and and for our audience this is how you and I met it was it was the common bond of snow leopards and community-based conservation and Panji Foundation is really all about working with almost working for the communities and having having the communities help themselves and we our simple program it's simple yet beautiful in execution and and rich in in depth is we go in uh i say we uh, our our crew is all nepali and they they are nepali helping nepali and they go in they're biologists they're wildlife experts they're teachers school teachers and we take groups of school kids who grow up they live in the mountains and yet they don't know their own backyard they don't have the opportunity both through education or or financially that they don't have opportunity to really know and understand their own backyard. And so we take these kids out and through the vehicle of snow leopard conservation, showing the kids uh, various scientific methods of studying these cats and the overall ecosystem. These kids learn about not only snow leopards, not only about endangered species, but their own cultural heritage the importance of biodiversity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and even the adults involved, they learn so much and they grow so much and they bond. There's this intergenerational bond that occurs that doesn't 
happen organically very often. And it does in these, in these classes. So for us, it's, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. I always say I'm, I'm merely, merely, I always say I'm merely a cheerleader. Uh, I fell in love with this program through Dr. Sam Ale. It's really his, his baby. And, and I'm just kind of cheering him along and, and helping uh, gain support for him. So that's what we do. And I'm so excited to see how you are going to be able to integrate your technology into communities and continuing the all important community conservation concept. If communities aren't involved and if they're not invested and they don't understand or realize uh, importance or impact, it, nothing can work. And exactly. so uh, what you're doing, even though it's DNA and it's very scientific, goes very hand in hand with good old fashioned community support through conservation. And so it, it's pretty cool. No, no, I absolutely agree. And this, this, this is a learning process for me as well, because I come from the scientific background of conservation and science is an essential part of conservation. But what I've learned through my whole conservation journey is that everyday people and communities are the most important aspect for successful conservation programs. Science is important, but really it is a much smaller part compared to, you know, the, the role that the public and these communities play. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I mean, I went to Nepal many, many years ago uh, on a long uh, Buddhist meditation retreat, and I just fell in love with this country and the people and the wildlife and the mountain vistas. And it just, it, it's, it's such an incredible place. And I knew that I had to do something in this country. I had to do something to, yeah, to help the people. I mean, of course, I want to help snow leopard, but we really have to help the people first. And that's, and that's what I'm realizing with, with these programs and what Panji is doing. Like you say, education is, is such an important aspect uh, to helping these communities and, and teaching them about the importance of the ecosystem that surrounds them. And, and teaching them uh, through local Nepali people about their culture so they can take pride in their culture again and learn to live in harmony with nature again, which, which they used to do, <laughs> right? But, but then a big part of that is also um, helping, helping these communities depend less on livestock for their livelihood. I mean, we've realized through research that uh, snow leopard actually really require livestock to a certain degree for their survival because, yes, we need to replenish their natural prey, but that's going to take a long time. And in the meantime, they do depend on livestock for, for their very survival, just as people do. So if we can find ways through, through you know, microcredit programs like what Panji are doing to help to help them rely less on, on livestock, then that empowers them even further. And then suddenly it opens their field of view up um, to, to, to wanting to protect their local e ecosystem and, and, and discovering that actually the ecosystem, you know, as we're discovering in our own backyards, just how important 
a healthy ecosystem is for our very survival. I mean, yeah. the, the we're, ironic we're thing. We're absolutely connected to the natural world. We're, we're absolutely. Even though we live in buildings and, and often consider ourselves separate from, from wildlife, we are, we're just animals ourselves and, and we are part of the natural world. It's been really fun to see in Nepal, these programs take off and people get excited. And, and once people get excited about saving animals, apex predators, they are, they're essentially building not just physical corridors of safety for these animals, land where it's safe, they're building social corridors of safety as well, where the communities begin to understand the importance, but they also get to see some livelihood uh, realization uh, by protecting their own backyard, especially in a country like Nepal, but, but it happens everywhere. It happens in the United States as well. Mm. When you protect those natural resources in Nepal, that's why so many tourists go to countries like Nepal is to see these beautiful, intact, natural areas, big mountains, wildlife. And so there is benefit, financial benefit, in protecting these areas. And that's fun too, to not just expect these communities to drop everything and save apex predators, which are killing their livestock, but they're also seeing real financial gains by protecting the, these animals. And I think it's easy to sit on a pedestal in, uh, North America and judge people for being angry that that a cat kills a goat, uh, for example. And and really, who are we to judge? Uh, we we can't you know unless you walk a mile in their shoes, how can you know what these livestock herders are are going through and experiencing? It's such a rough rough life, mm -hmm. and so you can't judge them. You can't condemn people for for many of their beliefs, even if they're, you know, just because they're not our beliefs doesn't mean they're wrong. And so it's a learning experience all around. We learn from them. Hopefully they learn from us. And the big benefit is uh, protecting the overall environment, which then protects kids for generations to come. And, and everyone uh, hopefully comes away doing good things and receiving good benefits. Exactly. And, you, and I mean, that is the solution for so many of the world's problems, right, is to if we can take a moment and want to really genuinely want to understand things from another person or another group of people's perspective. And, you know, that's 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 been very important in your uh, political climate in the US is to, you know, it's so easy to condemn the other side. But unless we truly want to understand where they're coming from, we're not really going to make much progress. And so I also wanted to add that um, these communities have their own valuable knowledge when it comes. I mean, they, they live in this, in, in this ecosystem. They understand it better than any of us scientists could possibly hope to understand the wildlife in that area. Mm -hmm. So... It's about understanding what they already know, what they can teach us. And by teaching us, you know, how can we help you? How can you help us for, for a common cause? I mean, I think that is the way to do conservation, not just walking in and saying, hey, we know best, we're the scientists. <laughs> that never works. It never works. 
So are you done with whales? No more whales <laughs> in your future? Well, I would never say never. I mean, I still love whales and it's, it's still really exciting research. But I, uh, to be honest, my, I really want to work more with communities now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I did that to a certain extent with humpback whale research. You know, I spoke to local coastal communities mm-hmm. about the whales in their backyard. Um, but it, it's something that, well, I've just realised that it, it, it takes local people to, to really um, bring about effective uh, conservation change. And that's where I want to focus my efforts. And that includes continuing on with um, perhaps documentaries and um, filming, because I think filming uh, and documentaries is such a powerful way to, to inspire to inspire everyday people to to be more involved in conservation. So if we can inspire them and then give them the tools to be able to contribute in a meaningful way, then that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in all of your years of experience, is there a single moment that it just sticks out that was either super crazy, super fun? Uh, is it just that one moment in, in working in these often beautiful landscapes that sticks with you. Oh yeah. There's always, there's this one, I mean, there have been many, but I think the one that sticks out the most for me was uh, the last time I was in the Southern Ocean. So we were looking for Antarctic blue whales. So it was an Antarctic blue whale voyage. And uh, the way that we find Antarctic blue whales is through acoustic detection. So we, we listen out for them and when we hear them, we use like a, 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 um, a triangulation to effectively find, pinpoint exactly where those whales are. And so we've been told that they're, you know, we're hearing whales and they should be, you know, here within the next five kilometres. And uh, all of a sudden they popped up. We thought we had a lot of warning and they just popped up next to the ship. I, for some reason, I was the only one who was dressed in the full Antarctic gear. So we would, we would run to the bow of the ship. We would get our biopsy rifles to take skin samples from them that we'd use to, to extract DNA and learn more about, about these animals. So I was told by the voyage leader, Nat, run out. You, you go first. You run out onto, well, I would have to walk because that's not safe to run. <laughs> walk to the bow of the ship and and just start taking photos or grab a biopsy if you can so here I was standing at the bow of the ship completely alone we were in the sea ice so when you're in sea ice it's like deathly quiet it's kind of equivalent to being at the top of a mountain ride it's just like it's just silent beautiful silence and so I'm standing there and suddenly I hear this big blow and the largest animal that has ever lived just pops up right in front of me. And for that moment, I was completely alone with this whale for probably about 10 minutes until the rest of my team showed up. But that moment of connection, being far away from civilization at one with this giant creature was just 
you just can't describe what that's like. How big are these whales? I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's huge, but, but how big are they? I don't know how to compare them to anything, but they are like 25 meters in length. They are when, so often we have to go out on little boats to get close enough to them to, to get our biopsy sample. And when you see one pop up next to you, you, you literally gasp. You gasp because they're so big. You, you can't fathom how big they are. <laughs> Is it ever, was it ever scary? I, mean, that, you're, I, I just imagine like these little, little inflatable dinghy boats in the Southern Ocean, which alone is is a massive power, <laughs> and and then and then this tremendously large mammal <laughs> pops up and and is right there with the boat. That, I, I would just think that's a little intimidating. Well, the, when they pop up and they're relaxed, it's fine. When they're not relaxed. That's when it gets a bit scary. So we we had one occasion where we were running out of light and we really wanted to get this biopsy sample. So we we started to, to chase these whales. And I think as soon as we accelerated a little bit, these whales, and I kid you not, started porpoising out of the water, jumping <laughs> a blue whale <laughs> jumping and I think all of us in the boat just stopped and swore at the same time it was just like we didn't know that they could do that and with such power and such speed and we're watching these whales and then suddenly this one whale comes right behind us and 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 goes under just missing our boat and so we knew at that moment okay they're not happy with us. <laughs> Let's just forget this. <laughs> and so you learn to read their behavior. You know when, you know, they're not liking whatever it is you're doing. So that's when you back off. But for that moment, it's, yeah. How I cold is the water? Like, had you fallen in, what, what would have happened? Yeah, you wouldn't survive very long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, well, it's what? Minus one, zero, zero degrees, minus one. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we wear dry suits, um, so that keeps us going for a little while. But that's why we always have to be within sight of the, the mothership. As soon as we're not in sight, they don't like it, and they're radioing us and going, hey, we can't see you. <laughs> How long do you spend on the, on the ship? How long are you at sea, essentially? About three months. It's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. It really so, is a long time. So you either really get along with everybody or you really don't. <laughs> Luckily, I've had no problem except maybe with a, there's one voyage leader with it. Yeah, it was a bit problematic. But, um, but no, mostly it's just been a wonderful group of people. We've all worked really well together. And it's, um, it's a very, it, it's, you don't have a lot of time or space to really um, take in what you're experiencing because it's, it really is very stressful uh, field work because, as you can imagine, how expensive it is to actually take a ship down into the Southern Ocean. And then so those samples become so precious. 
So I remember every time I got a sample, I was just so stressed, making sure I preserved it correctly, put it in the right reagents, you know, put one in the freezer and the other in liquid nitrogen. And, and I would worry about those samples because they're worth millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Yeah. But I like yeah. it that way. <laughs> so so you, you've had this close encounter, very intimate moment with the largest animal in the world. And now I guess what's left is we need to find a snow leopard for you to just <gasps> oh. hang out with. Oh my gosh, Brad. <laughs> for me to see a snow leopard, I, I, I know that I would cry. I would cry. I'd be, I'd get very emotional, but it just, I mean, these guys, they're the ghosts of the mountains, right? I've been fascinated by them ever since I was a kid. And it's, you know, what's interesting when I was a kid, I had the same fascination with blue whales. I thought they were almost like mythological creatures that it was impossible to ever be able to see one. And I've finally been able to see an Antarctic blue whale. And so to see a snow leopard would just, I, I'd die happy. <laughs> I, I've always found it interesting that certain species, certain animals evoke very strong emotional connections almost romantically emotional connections with people. And, and on the flip side of that coin, some species and some animals do not uh, elicit any kind of emotional response from humans. And, and I've, I've just always found that really interesting. And because I, look at me, I'm as guilty as anyone. I think snow leopards are fascinating. They're beautiful. It's something I've always wanted to connect with. And, and it's interesting, different people have different connections with different animals. No one's always the same. And, and I just find it, I, I almost feel bad for these animals that don't elicit emotional connection with humans. But, <laughs> but I guess that's just the way it goes. <laughs> what, what are some of your, obviously, whales and snow leopards, what are some of your just favorite animals that you, you connect with? Well, I've always loved, I've always really loved our Australian marsupials. So I used to, I used to study marsupials and I just find them the most interesting and just, I don't know, that they're very Australian in terms of, uh, they're a little bit cheeky like we are. <laughs> and um, they just, they're just so different to, to any other animal on earth, really. And so I've always found them really interesting. But in terms of connection, hmm, that's an interesting question because I, I, I find myself able to connect with so many different animals. It's, it's not, I, I've never really had a favourite animal mm -hmm. because I just find them all so intriguing. I, I admire them all so much for their ability to survive because like every animal out there is a survivor, you know, they've managed to adapt to these intense environmental changes that we're putting the, the world through. And I mean, when I was going, when I was in Antarctica in the Southern Ocean, I had so much respect and admiration for the seabirds like you'd look out your little porthole on the ship and 
these seabirds would be flying around by themselves in a blizzard, in the middle of a blizzard at night. And these birds would fly for months at a time trying to find food. And how can you not just be absolutely in awe of these animals and their ability to survive? It's just, it puts us to shame, my God. <laughs> how about you? Like apart from snow leopard, do you have, are there other, other animals that? Big that cats in general. Actually, apex predators. I'm fascinated by them. And, uh, you know, the, the, difference the dichotomy of predator and prey species and how beautifully mother nature works mm. and the fact that these apex predators often get slighted and are seen as enemies uh, to people i think has endeared me to them mm. but uh, unlike you i think animals in general are just wonderful and fascinating and so full of diversity and and incredible features and and yeah so Exactly. No single animal, but uh, uh, <laughs> they're all important. They are. They are. Even, Even the, the snakes one... and the spiders and <laughs> yes. the. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll let yes. someone else worry about those guys, though. <laughs> <laughs> they're yeah. always persecuted. I think they need a bit more positive media. Snakes and <laughs> ooh, snakes and spiders, and I just, oops, ah. Oh. Sorry, I just lost the screen for a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> well, imagine yourself 20 years from now, sitting at home, reading a book, having a cup of tea, whatever it might be. What do you hope you've achieved as you look back to your overall career in science and conservation? Do you, do you have a legacy you want to leave? Do you have a goal uh, so that when you are looking back 20 years from now, uh, you're, you're still very satisfied and content with, with what you've done? That's such an interesting question. And it's, it's actually never the, I, I never, I never think about what I would like to achieve, you know, my, my, what I'd like to achieve in achieving my life in order that I'll feel satisfied, you know. I all I can ever hope to do is I just want to be of use to the world. I want to use my passion and my skills and my talents to inspire people to to help in some way. And so for me, just helping even if it's in small ways is is enough for me. I, I don't have these huge ambitions. I mean, of course, I would love this technology to succeed. And, and through the technology, I would like to, you know, maybe use the commercial application of the technology to fund conservation projects. And I'd love to bring young people on board because I think young people need to be given a voice because they have some incredible ideas. They need to be inspired. They need to feel passion for conservation because they're the ones that are essentially going to save us <laughs> yeah, yeah um so yeah i i, I want to I, I would like to inspire younger generations uh to want to be involved in in conservation and 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 everyday people i guess but again if i can just be even slightly useful uh to helping the world in some way then i'll be happy 
Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, I cannot thank you enough for being a guest on our podcast. Uh, it's it's always fun to hang out and talk, and I can't wait until we can do it in person again. Oh, uh, yes. In fact, it was about this time last year we were hanging out in person. Who knew exactly the, the events of of. Oh. Uh, the pandemic we're about to unfold. But, uh, crazy. We were blissfully unaware, I think. Yes, yes. So <laughs> that time will come again, and I look forward to it. Again, thank you so much, Nat. It's It's been really fun. Where can people learn more about you, more about Wild Tech DNA? Is there a website, or, or is there anything they can follow that... Uh, yeah, you can just uh, um, wildtechdna.com. Uh, go to our website and you can you can follow us. You can subscribe uh, to updates and, yeah, you can follow us there. Or, 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 or have a look at my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel. So, yeah, any, any, I've got lots of videos Great. around technology and other things. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. All right. Until Thanks, next Brad. time. All so right. See ya. It. Okay. See ya. Bye. Bye.